right, hello and welcome to the unofficial, well, the official at YouTube podcast, but the unofficial YouTube podcast, I guess. This is episode number 48, where we're talking all things U2, including album news, tour dates, which are actually things we get to talk about now, and community discussions from the staff of U2. For this episode, I am joined by some familiar faces, I guess, voices, <laughs> and, and one who hasn't been on for a while. So, uh, Becky, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Good to have you back. Which episode, which uh, album one were you on? I forget. I think the last one I did was War, probably. Because okay. I missed the one after that. I couldn't make it that I was supposed to be on. I so you, you skipped all the 90s and you're back into the 2000s with us. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. I wanted to be on Pot, but I, I couldn't. I ended up having a work obligation. Oh, okay. Uh, and Ian, welcome back. Returning from last episode. So because last time I got some guff for not having a little... Intro intro quip. <laughs> Mine is going to be, and it was Chris when I looked in the mirror, and it was Chris when I didn't pick up the phone. Oh. So I knew today he couldn't do the podcast on his own. <laughs> nice. oh, well done. Good. Oh, yeah. That's well done. Dang. Bonus I points for Ian. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, Jill returning. This is your first album discussion episode. Welcome back, hello, Jill. Hello. Hello. <laughs> that's, my, that's the easiest yeah. one. Yeah. That's the theme going. There you go. <laughs> so for for anybody who's new, this is your if this is your first podcast you're listening to, we're doing an album by album series of U2's albums. Uh official albums. We're saving the B sides, the singles, the uh what? The passengers, the all those ones for another set of episodes we'll do hopefully after some time, if Songs of Experience doesn't come out in time, <laughs> we need more filler. <laughs> we'll be discussing all of those things. So we are uh we're going to skip with all the pleasantries and the in intro stuff and just jump right into the discussion of the album. So if you go back to episode number 34 of the podcast, which you can find at goodstuff.fm slash ATU2 slash 34, that's where we did Boy, which uh, started us all off. And uh, we're up to How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb, which I'm just going to do. I thought I'd just do a little quick Wikipedia reading to get us through some of the stats about the thing and just jump into the discussion. Does that sound okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, released back in 2004, produced by Steve Lillywhite with a bunch of other folks getting production credits, uh, Flood, Jackknife Lee, Chris Thomas, Daniel Anamaw, Brian Eno. Um, it was uh, won all nine Grammy Awards for which the album and the singles were nominated. It was also the fourth highest selling album of 2004, over 10 million copies have sold or were sold. Uh, Vertigo was featured, of course, in the Apple commercial for the iPod at the time, one of their, I think their first Apple connection, right? Or my misplacing my timeline yeah and then the uh, complete u2 an itunes store exclusive box set that had 448 tracks including previously unreleased content was also released around that time uh i remember actually when that came out and somehow i managed to for a little while you could actually pick singles off of the box set you didn't have to buy the whole thing so i grabbed like a bunch of the rare stuff before they locked it to like it was supposed to be you know obviously buy the whole set that's how you get all this extra bonus material um and then uh yeah around the time the promotional stuff they did was kind of a bit out there, I guess, for you two <laughs> at the time, anyways, coming on SNL, doing the uh, performing in New York City on a flatbed truck, and then doing the concert down by the Brooklyn Bridge, which was released later. And they're live from under the Brooklyn Bridge and an MTV special, all that kind of stuff. Jill, were you, I don't know if New York was your home back then and how you two family um, you were, but I was in school. I was, um, Oh, God, 2004. I was a sophomore in college. I went to school. Um, my college was on the Upper East Side. And, I mean, this was, like, the first album that I 
bought because I had started with them in high school, but it was like the greatest hits collection. So this was like the first real record of like newer music that I got from them. And I was kind of like getting really into the fandom and, you know, they're doing a thing at the Brooklyn Bridge. And I'm like, but how do I get there? Well, what do you mean they're doing a secret gig? And it's all these things that I didn't know how to do as a fan that I know how to do now. And there was no Twitter. There was no way for me to figure out, like, how to, like, get all this information about this band. So it was really interesting for me to kind of be so innocent at first. And now it's like, oh, the secret gig, like, I know where that is now or something. Yeah. But it was, like, it was a really fun time for me to kind of – really develop this relationship with them and um i look back on it like really fondly and it just it was definitely like the record that really helped me get through college when i kind of wasn't sure with what i wanted to do like to do with my life but um yeah i was like brooklyn bridge i was like what do you mean you're just gonna perform under there like who does that you know <laughs> how about you ian what was your when you first heard it or how did what was your first hearing of it I specifically remember when I was sitting in front of my computer and I started getting like this. E I was part of a email list or something like that, and I started getting these messages saying, "You two is on a flatbed truck driving around New York playing concerts and stuff like that." And there are lots of people following them, and I just had this vision in my mind of like them driving around and all these people like cavorting and dancing in the streets behind them as they drove through New York. And then they, yeah, they did that uh, Brooklyn Bridge concert and they were just driving around doing all these concerts. They were releasing uh, yeah, their entire catalog digitally. They had an iPod going. Uh, they, what was the other thing? Uh, I really enjoyed like the initial music video Vertigo. Um, and then uh, this was the first album slash tour where they did everything through their website rather than having mail-in. Uh, applications for getting tickets and uh, there were, it was a bit of a mess getting tickets and stuff like that but it just yeah, felt like it felt like a really really kind of new and exciting time for you two I really loved the album I loved the uh, design aesthetic for all the art that went with it and just the um, tradecraft that they created for it it for me it's I wouldn't necessarily say it's it was the most innovative time or whatever but in certain ways it's the most like special time for me being a youtube fan just thinking about the vertigo slash how does male atomic bomb era and it's tied with zoo Ropa for my favorite album nice how about you becky what do you remember when you first heard the album or you know um i what ian just said is what i was thinking about this is when everything was going online and they actually had a website as i recall that was somewhat functional and that we bought tickets online i actually just went through um my memorabilia and found printouts from i'm not kidding you dated august 21st 2006 and then i have that was when i was buying the tickets right but then i have I must have printed that out later, but from October 30th, 2005, it was right after the show from the Houston Chronicle where they did a review of the show. And then I had my confirmation from buying the tickets, the Ticketmaster. So this is pretty hilarious. And the tickets were $160. <laughs> so I'm not sure that it's changed a whole lot. But um, I just remember that the experience was different and uh, we, we weren't going and waiting in line for this. And um, 
when I first heard the album, though, I liked it. It took me a long time to like it more. There were some songs I love and some that grew on me over time, for sure. Um, I, in their overall catalog, I really like this album. Not as much as others, but I think for the time, you know, in the 2000s when they were trying to come back and be relevant again, you know, and with this one and then all that you can't leave behind, they produced the songs that were appealing to the masses a little bit more than some of their previous stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. And like Ian brought up some of the promotional stuff and I talked about that beginning of promotional stuff they did too, and how much of that plays into the success or not of a ba- of an album and like, in, like you can, I'm sure, well, I know you two fans can argue until they're blue in the face about whether they're going after commercial success or going after the art or whatever, or whatever is in between. And, um, they, the, but it does seem like when they do go out of their way to, you know, promote, <laughs> get Larry out of the <laughs> off his bike or whatever, to actually promote the album and stuff and do appearances and all that kind of stuff, it definitely seems to translate into success and then Grammy success, even whether that's directly related or indirectly or whatever, but um, they definitely, you know, it, it does help, I guess. And so it's interesting just well, as we're sort of gearing up now again for potentially a new album on the horizon um, to see what they do and how much they participate and how the landscape has changed for promoting, promoting an album and stuff in 20, what are we, 17? So yeah. um, at Bruna Caffey asked, what do you, or said, please talk about Creepy Edge on the How to Dismantle Atomic Bomb cover, which in his opinion, uh, I think it's his, is the worst album cover in YouTube history, <laughs> which... Oh, it doesn't hold a candle to October. <laughs> yeah, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, some I of the older ones. The worst cover, I don't think. I mean, I think the pop cover kind of sucks a little bit. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Ooh. <laughs> it's my favorite album. I'm trying to, like, offend it here. But I don't know if he looks creepy. I mean, I think Larry looks a little weird. For yeah. me, I, I mean, the photo isn't the best, but I really love... I don't know how to describe them. Whatever the lines are, like the caution lines. That the, they um, the chevron lines? Yeah, the chevrons mm-hmm. that they used as kind of the design point throughout uh, the whole album and the singles. Just the black and the bright red chevrons and how they did that with the t-shirts and with the mm-hmm. iPod and all that stuff. It looked so good. It was so good. Yeah, it was definitely a good like uh, cohesion of everything across the board, which they like they do generally try to do. But this, that album and tour and everything that went with it kind of really, especially for being like the, the simple, like you said, Chevron's line, you know, it, it's a very simple look, but it, they're able to take that graphically and translate that into everything that they sort of did, um, on the tour and promotioning promotion of the album. So, um, <laughs> I'm already starting a chat room war about the worst album cover in history. <laughs> 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 but uh that's fair you could you can send in your opinions even if not everybody agrees we're happy to share i didn't love it either but i think it's fine and it's good that they had a unified identity across everything they were doing again they were going online more and sort of catching up with the times yeah this um, this was the first album well excuse me the first tour where the pre-sale happened and no one could get tickets, and then you had to log in and log in again. Uh, and then three days later, you finally find GAs that are available for some reason, and you get them, and you're super elated three days after the fact that you're supposed to be elated. It it prepared me for all the YouTube sales going forward for the next few days. <laughs> this, this was the trial by fire. This is the one that – I still remember it was like – it was three days later, and GAs just started popping up, and – yeah, I, I squealed like a schoolgirl. 
Well, and also what I distinctly remember and um, is that I did get GA tickets for the show here in Houston. And so you know how they funnel people through the GA line for check-in? And then if you were scanned, they were scanning people randomly into the inner circle. <laughs> you guys remember that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, I got scanned in. Oh my God. It was like the best thing ever. I jumped all over my husband, you know, we, and I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Only if one of you got scanned in, then you both went. Right. Yeah. Yep. So only one of our tickets scanned in. So I was so excited. And, um, that was before they used to stuff the inner circle with too many people. And so I could walk around and I actually was right. I could walk around the whole inner circle and just follow Bono or edge or whomever. And um, that, to this day, was probably my favorite concert experience with them. Yeah, I'll, I don't have an official discussion line item as far as the tour part of it, but worth just continuing off that, Becky, because I was, I was going to say my, um, it was my, I, I saw them in pop uh, on the Pop Mart tour, but it was way up in the nosebleeds and didn't know how to get tickets, you know, closer. I don't know whatever I was doing, but um, this tour was the first time I actually made an effort, and I was working with the now since defunct pour one out for them youtulog.com site and uh, i have to thank cindy if she happens to listen for smuggling me into the, <laughs> the inner circle area somehow and my wife and i and uh, and got in and was like the the exact kind of experience you want to have at a youtube show where you just get to be like right up close experience everything mm-hmm. it's louder than sin and you're just like right in the thick of it with insane fans and then be able to, you know, go step back, like you said, and sort of experience it a little bit further away from all the mess of sweat and bodies and stuff. But, um, (laughs) yeah, it was a great first experience for being up close. Plus then I've mentioned before, but arcade fire closed or opened for them and then closed with them on stage and stuff. And it was kind of just this awesome historic tour or concerts to be at. So, um, yeah. Yeah. How about Ian or or, uh, Jill, any comments on the actual tour when you actually went? Um, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it was my first like YouTube show. It was my first tour. Cause like when the, ele- the, uh, the elevation tour happened, I didn't like have a car yet. And I also didn't know who was going to go with me. And I, so I couldn't like figure out how to get tickets. I had no idea how it worked, but like we were staying with like the fan club. It was like my first time doing like a pre-sale and like oh this is how i get tickets now i used to just go to like the record store and they had a Ticketmaster outlet there and you'd go in person but now i'm like oh i have to buy these online and you know like i got the tickets and i saw them in new jersey and then like i was so moved that i finally got to see them live and i was like okay so how do i get to go again and i ended up getting they did like i think it was like six shows at the garden for like the fall leg of the Vertigo tour and my friends and I, we, we paid like $300 each for like StubHub tickets, but like we got to go. And like from then on, I was like, I need to be on top of these tickets from now on. I have to know how to do like a presale. So, but I don't know. It was like a really crazy experience to finally hear these songs that just had affected me so much. And now I'm hearing them live and I'm like, Oh, this band is real. Like they exist and they're in front of me. So it was great to finally have that chance to see them and to know that, okay, like I'm going to have to commit to them for like the rest of my life. Cause that's what ended up happening. Right. Here we are. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Ian? Uh, I just remember the first 
time, like City of Blinding Nights was the opening song for me. And the curtain, they had those like really, really awesome bead curtains that they could do images on, but they Mm -hmm. could walk through and they could roll up and down. And just getting to see like, I mean, City of Blinding Lights is my favorite U2 song, bar none. And just getting to the way they had the images where it was just like these flashing lights zooming past you on the screen. And they had this Japanese text that was scrolling down and just as an opening song for that album when there had been so much stress because ticket sales were delayed and the tour announcement was delayed because there were some health problems within the band and... Yeah, once it finally happened and there was just that release of all the stress and all that, and it was with such an amazing song with such amazing visuals, it, again, it's, it's my favorite album, and this was probably my favorite tour that I've been on, and this was it, they repaid the stress with okay, – I shouldn't say that. They paid off the stress <laughs> with such an amazing, amazing concert and amazing intro, and yeah, definitely my favorite U2 show to date. So good. Those it was. I forgot about the light bulb curtain. Yeah, oh, they were amazing. Unbelievable. Yes. Yeah. That was really cool. For me, the tour put it all together and made it made the album better for me, of course. So Yeah, that often seems to happen with you too. <laughs> Well, true. The tour kind of completes the uh, the. It starts with, the vision almost starts on the album, and then you get to sort of see the completed version in a sense on the tour. And uh, Fabiano in the chat room was saying his concert on that the best concert on that best concert ever. Sorry, it was in Hawaii and he or Honolulu, yeah, and saw Pearl Jam opening in the middle. They had Green Day with the Saints are coming, and then Pearl Jam on the stage at the end for free. Wow, rocking through it, which is pretty. Damn, what a lineup! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Outside of the Super Bowl, I don't think you can see that lineup there. So, um, all right, well, let's get into the discussion of the actual album, the songs on the album. So, first up, as obviously, is uh, Vertigo. So coming off of pop and then all that you can't leave behind, they went from this hyper techno disco motif to a very stripped back, back to the basics aesthetic with all that you can't leave behind. And then I, I specifically remember the afternoon when this came out and there was a bootleg version available online uh, for a few days before some Australian radio station had been releasing a promo that just had the hello, hello, hola bit. And then when the full song came out, I was already so hyped just from that little clip. And it just had more energy in it than any U2 song I had heard in ages. And even my boss, who was like, I only like the first three albums after war, they lost me. Even he heard it and was going, oh, wow, those are some really awesome drums and stuff like that. It, I still remember just the energy that came off this song. It was so amazing. And then a couple of days later, the video debuted on Yahoo of all places. I mean, this, it's, I mean it's so incongruous at this point. But, yeah, the video yeah. showed up and they just had like – I don't know if it was supposed to be smoke or black sand or whatever pouring off them. And the ground was rippling in target circles around the, yeah. 
I cannot remember a time I was more energized by a single U2 song. That's awesome. That's I remember that video too, just like even the the uh, visual effects of it sort of blowing my mind at the time of yeah. how, I mean, you sort of like, it was at the time where obviously digital movies and stuff were a, a thing and CGI and all that stuff was a thing, but it still felt like for a music video, it was pretty intense uh, and uh, and really well done. So I, I always think of like the, the first singles off of U2 album always kind of like, kind of like what we said earlier, it didn't really sit right with me at first, but then you listen to it 10 times or a hundred times or whatever. And it's like, now it's a song that just like can't help, but be infectious and make you want to get up off your seat or whatever. So yeah, uh, it, it kind of reset my expectations of what you two could do at that point. And there was just so much energy. I remember like having to listen to it like 10 times before I even really believed it was them right. just because it, there was just so much tight energy packed up into a little three minute song. I, yeah, it was yeah. awesome. I think that's still one of their best songs. I love it a lot. And um, clearly, I mean, they still put it into every show, or they have been in each tour. And it just gets everybody up and jumping. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, all right, let's keep moving. Miracle Drug is track two. Oh, I'm going to start crying. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's, you know, um, like this album's like my favorite U2 album like ever. And um, this song and City of Blinding Lights are absolutely in like my top 10 favorite U2 songs like ever. And for me, Miracle Drug, it's, for me, it's like the most perfect and it's, in YouTube by YouTube, when Bono kind of talks about like what the song is about, um, it's what he wrote the song about, and then how I've interpreted the song. It's kind of like the most understated sort of love song. You know, I want to trip inside your head. You know, and it's just like I would love for someone to just kind of like say that to me. Like you want to like <laughs> see what I want to see, and for me, this song, my favorite Edge guitar solo ever. Like, it's so good. And I remember um, my a coworker of mine, he, he puts on, like, the YouTube Pandora for me, like, if I'm, like, baking. And this song came on, and we were just chatting. And I said, okay, we need to stop, like, right now, because this is about to be, like, your head's about to explode when you hear this guitar solo. Like, it's so good. And he's like, yeah, he's like, it's, it's great. And I was like, no, it's perfect, okay? <laughs> and I just, lyrically, it's wonderful. But I think this song is definitely an edge song where he is the scientist and you hear this kind of just melody coming off his guitar and it's just so wonderful and it just it takes my breath away it's so good it's funny that you say scientist because one of the things that really stands out to me with this song is how such a heavily religious christian group could do a song with the lyrics in science and in medicine. I was a stranger. You took me in. I mean, I'm not a religious person at all, but when I hear very religious people saying stuff like that, where they say like, let's use all the tools that we've been given, Mm -hmm. regardless of who we think they've been given to us from. It's, it, it makes me so happy just in science and medicine. I was a stranger. You took me in the phrase it like it's a religious parable or whatever, but it's about, 
what science and what human ingenuity can create. And I love every part of it. Yeah, I think it was also going off of what Jill was saying about the guitar solo. And it kind of was like this, it's okay. It's going to be okay because Edge is still Edge and he's still got the chiming, ringing guitars, even though they're doing some like hard rock stuff with Vertigo. <laughs> I just remember thinking like, okay, there's that familiar sound with Edge. I don't need him to do it every song, but definitely, you know, it's just kind of like a comfort sound. <laughs> that he I still have to, Oh, sorry, Becky, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say the, the lyric that stands out for me on this song is when he sings, the songs are in your eyes. I see them when you smile. I've had enough of romantic love. I'd give it up. Yeah, I'd give it up for a miracle drug. That struck me pretty deeply the first time I heard of it because, you know, it was just somebody thinking way outside of themselves and saying, you know what, I've had such a brilliant life and brilliant romantic love. And that if I could save somebody, so many other lives, I would do it. And, um, yeah, I just, that one, that's the one lyric that really struck me in this song. Yeah, it's beautiful. And, and like, uh, I think Ian said, but like, there's many different ways you can pull out of this and, and sort of emotions and themes you can pull out of this song depending on what's even going on within your life or what you've experienced and, and stuff like that. And it, yeah, it's just one of those great songs that I've often, um, it's too bad that they didn't, I was gonna say, I've often wondered why they don't do it more. Like they stopped, they basically tried it a couple of oh, times, no. but then didn't want to include it. And for maybe thematic reasons, it didn't fit within, uh, the last tour, but it definitely feels like a song that just brings the, it's sort of like a slower song with a really intense, guitar you know solo and riff and stuff that is awesome to hear live so hopefully it comes back around sometime soon so oh, i was a stranger you took me in i mean god that's like so much feeling like i can't get over that like it's you hear it you just hear the song and it's oh i love it so much yeah uh that's at youtube war 40 said i love the band's vocals with larry edgebono on miracle drug this song lifts me up every time i listen so uh, and by the way, you can send in comments, questions about the podcast, about whatever we're talking about using hashtag ask at you too on Twitter. And we'll grab those. Most of them will try and catch them all anyways and uh, throw them in the show where appropriate. So next up is sometimes you can't make it on your own. I definitely, I don't know like why I find this in myself, but I always kind of see myself gravitating towards songs where Bono writes about, you know, very personal experiences with like family. Obviously like Iris is my favorite song from Songs of Innocence where he talks about his mother. So this song where he, and it was about like his relationship with his father, I connected to it in, um, an experience that I had growing up where I was bullied really badly in middle school and I kept it hidden from my parents. And obviously when you're like 13, you know, you're very secretive and you don't want your parents to know what's going on with you. You just sort of become like a moody teenager, but they pick up on those things and I didn't want their help in helping me, but eventually I had to break down and I had to, you know, look to them for guidance and, the tables ended up being flipped years later when I saw my parents mourn their mothers separately within like a year of each other. So it was kind of that one lyric Urbano says, um, 
can I take some of the punches for you tonight? That's how I saw my relationship with my parents at that point in their lives. So I've always looked to Bono as kind of like a savior in writing these songs where he talks about relationships with his father, with his mother, because I think a lot of people can kind of relate to them on that level. But when I first heard this song, I was just like, wow, like, can I just give you like a hug in some way, like just by going to the show and by singing along because it's raw, like Mm -hmm. the whole, the opera of this song. And it's definitely one of my favorites. And I just think the whole personal aspect is what I love about Bono as a songwriter, because he's not afraid to open up about things like this. And obviously, like the relationship with his father, you know, we've all kind of like known about going through like U2's history and how important like his dad was to him. And I just think this song was just, oh, my God, it just it like hits you in the gut emotionally, but sort of in the best way that he got to write this song as kind of like a tribute and to be like, Hey, I'm here for you. in that sort of like sense, you know, you, you know, put the opera in me. It's, it's really quite like remarkable, like how great this song is. I agree. I, I have a similar take when this came out, my grandfather had passed away and he was in almost a hundred and it was the first time, like, my dad, it was my dad's dad. And we went to his funeral service. And my dad, I'm the only girl. I have four brothers. And my dad, we went to this service in the church, which was actually very casual. It was interesting. People stood up and shared memories. It was in northern New Hampshire, so it was a very small town. But then we went to, to bury him, and my dad held on to my hand and didn't let go. And my dad was always, you know, pretty straightforward and, but never spoke a lot about his feelings until later in life. Um, but at that time it was really interesting that he picked me and just grabbed on, you know, at the gravesite. And so I remember that distinctly. And then when this song came out, um, not too long after that, that's where I go with it. And um, so it's similar to what you were saying, Jill. And um, I also want to say the video on this just, I think, blew everybody away. It totally blew me away away because it was so stripped down. It's Bono Mm -hmm. in the hoodie walking down Grafton Street, right? And and he hits it. He totally hits it. And it blew me away. And then when I saw it live and he takes his glasses off, which he never does hardly in the shows, right? Mm -hmm. Or he hadn't then. And it just drew me to tears when he did that in the show because you know he spent that whole tour saying goodbye to his father (laughs) and that he had been writing that song. I remember reading a quote from Allie somewhere where she said it took him years to just process that and that how heart-wrenching it was for her to watch it. And um, he spent that whole tour saying goodbye to his dad. So, yeah, it was was tough but beautiful all at the same time. Well, the cool thing I liked about the live performances of it was, um, A, how they just had that giant kind of generic figure of the postman mm-hmm. walking, and Bono's dad was a postman, but they made it just a very like non-specific and approachable by anybody who was looking at it. And then also the whole idea of sometimes you can't make it on your own when Bono's voice was faltering a bit and he couldn't quite hit the notes he used to be able to. So Edge was taking care of the falsettos for him. 
Um, and it was very evident when it was happening in the live shows. I just, I like the, I don't, I don't know the exact phrase for it, just the, how the parallel tracks of that, how edge was covering for him. Yeah. Taking uh, punches for him in a sense. <laughs> t- yeah. Doing, doing the lyrics that are talking about having someone take the punches for you. Yeah, that's true. You're giving me chills. Ian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was amazing. I'm going to see, this is where I'll start crying. Jill. <laughs> Lots of feels. It is. I mean, not there's, it's sort of almost cliche at this point, probably for, especially not especially, but, uh, speaking as a guy to have dad issues and father issues and all that kind of stuff. And you're bitter and angry at this guy who, you know, didn't raise you right or whatever, but then you see them, you know, like Jill said, like, or sorry, Becky said, you know, burying their parents. And then all of a sudden they're become, they become more than human almost and and really frail. And I'm not through that yet, but I know a friend of mine just buried his father and, and just the lyric in the song that you can't help but feel either whichever way you're looking up uh, to your dad, your parents or down to your own kids, if you have them or the younger generation or whatever it is. And uh, yeah, it's hard not to be able to connect in some deeper level to something to the lyric in this song anyway. So well, let's keep moving on before we all start bawling. <laughs> to love <the> piece <laughs> or else. I think I forgot to do the fade on that one automatically because it was just going to keep, yeah. <laughs> which is, is never really a problem when you're listening, but we don't want to get sued or anything like that. So <laughs> we'll uh, keep it down for now. But um, yeah, the uh, Love and Peace or Else. I've, this is one of those songs that for me, I couldn't get. Uh, and if this is heresy, someone can argue with me, but uh, or sh- show me the way. But uh, I couldn't get when I was listening to it on the album. But then once I saw the live version uh, and then especially the concert video and stuff and just the the whole I think the stepping back and seeing the whole stadium or concert uh, venue with this song at play and the video, the visuals and everything. And um, I mean, Bono slapping the drums or whatever. <laughs> Was, yeah. has its own issues or whatever but and it, like but the passion that he exhibited in that moment i guess is sort of more what i was connecting with than the kind of goofiness of it <laughs> sometimes but, i thought it was awesome <laughs> <laughs> right right because if you're up close it feels awesome and stuff but sometimes i know in a, i think it was when we were watching uh the youtube 3d uh video at uh, in cleveland and stuff and every, you could hear people in the audience kind of like chuckling a little bit when it, it's that point but there is kind of like all this passion that's in that moment too that obviously is going on so but yeah the narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were alternating between "City of Blinding Lights" and "Love and Peace or Else" for the opening song at that point in the tour. And I saw two shows, one right after the other, and so they switched from one opening track to the other. And just hearing that low rumbling "boo boo boo," yeah, uh, as they were walking around the uh, bomb shelter uh, with those spotlights shining it on the audience, and it sounded like planes were flying overhead. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. just, I mean, it wasn't quite as good as City of Blinding Lights for an opener, but it was pretty damn close. <laughs> Interesting. I thought it was great later in the set where they had it. Um, I didn't see both versions, but, and I know, Chris, I heard you say you didn't quite follow the song. This one, to me, it's it's more, it is a little more religious, I guess, in some ways. Um, oh, yeah, 
Definitely. But this, you know, where he's just pleading, you know, where's the love? And we could talk it through. And it, it's so good on so many levels. I actually love this song, and I probably should have put my name down next to it. But it's um, <laughs> there's some weird lyrics in it, like, you know, we're going to break the monsters back. Oh, yeah, Daughters of Zion and all your Abraham's sons, of course, straight out of the Bible. But it's so good, and it just appeals to people. And this sure could be good in any day and age. The lyrics certainly stand the test of time, like so many of their songs. But when he when they played it live, and you're down there right in front of him, which I was, it's like, whoa, it's pretty intense in the whole narrative of the show. Mm-hmm. And, well, and I, I loved it. When they're talking about uh, breaking the monster's back, coming off the previous album where Bono's singing about becoming a monster so the monster does not break you, this is maybe like the recovery from that, the figuring out how to get back to your center after the monster has made you into a monster. It's a song that, that feels like a bit of like a the, – the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? The lighter version or the more sympathetic version of bullet, the blue sky, almost like Ian said, you know, you, you, it sounds like the planes are flying overhead in the intro and, but it's a bit more of like, okay, this is how we're going to actually work this out. Whereas bullet is kind of like the rage of, <laughs> of what he's seeing. Mm-hmm. And this is like, okay, this is the peace part of it maybe, or the love and peace part, obviously um, that, that uh, comes out of that, I guess in, in a sense. So, but yeah, it's that watching the. I remember watching the U two three D thing, but also just seeing you know watching it at home and and that that low rumble that you know every band I think needs at least a few songs like that that they can like either open a tr- open a concert with or open the you know the set the second set or whatever with something like that that just kind of draws everyone in that <laughs> getting that kind of uh, audio effect that uh, brings people around to you is, is awesome. So um, all right, let's keep moving. City of Blinding Lights next. Yeah, so this is my favorite U2 song, Bar None. Um, I know some folks think it's kind of like a poor man's Where the Streets Have No Name, so to speak. But for me, it it's just unmitigated joys. I mean, Streets is all about how cities are rusted and our love turns to dust and Streets Have No Name and all this kind of like sad forlorn stuff this song is just like pure unadulterated joy about two young people going to a place with bright lights that are in buildings and formats that are like so far above their heads that they have to look up to the skies to see it and it just has this energy and when you're watching it live and the whole audience is throwing their hands forth with the oh you look so beautiful tonight and it yeah i I think generally Bono does his best lyrics when he's being angry or bitter or chiding or sarcastic. But this is one of the exceptions where it is maybe his best lyric, maybe not his best, but one of his best. And it's just about joy and exploration and energy and honesty. And yeah, it it makes me so happy to hear it live. 
Yeah, it was uh, at Bruna Caffey mentioned the, the idea that it was the poor man's where the streets have no name, which uh, he said, it's not bad, but you don't need it when you have an Uber song like Streets, which we can have both. It's That's the blessing of being you two. It's not one or the other. But I will say before, I know Jill has some comments on it too, but I, I think I mentioned this in a previous episode of the podcast that it felt like I, the album version, this is one of those cases where the album version feels like it has more uh, punch punch to it than the live version, not in terms of the audience reaction, because obviously <laughs> me listening by myself versus 30,000 people in the stadium is going to be vastly different, but the just the, the instrumentation of it or something just felt like it was the depth or the fullness wasn't there the same way it is when I listen to it, say on a CD or whatever, but uh, that doesn't, that's just more production than the actual song. I just remember it, like where Streets doesn't, is also kind of, it feels like it hits you bigger than uh, City of Blinding Lights did at least for for my two cents or whatever live, but that's Canadian two cents, so that's not worth as much. Uh, Joe, your thoughts on City? Um, I definitely like echo what Ian said. I he I love how he like defended the song and because it's like he said it's you know like Bono does do, do his best songwriting when he's kind of has like a chip on his shoulder and he's sort of like angry and has like a message, but this song is such joy and it radiates. Hope, I mean, Obama had it playing when he was, you know, walking out to do his farewell speech. And to me, this song is New York City. This song reminds me of New York. This song made me want to move to New York. And they have a song called New York on All That You Can't Leave Behind. And it's nothing compared to this song. And I mean, Flashball's Purple Irises, like it's beautiful. And it just, you, like when you hear it live and I think, I agree with you, Chris, where it's like, I love hearing it live. It gets me so pumped and I just love hearing it. But the album version is, I don't know, it feels more full to me. I feel like I connect more with like the album version than I do when I hear it live, even though I love hearing it live. But I mean, I'm, I definitely have a connection with, you know, the final lyric blessings, not just for the ones who kneel luckily. And it sort of goes back to, I'm also not very, religious so for bono to be like hey you know what good things come to you even though you might not have a religious god to pray to so my whole thing is always you know hearing this song is like blessings like it's you know bono is allowing me to know that i have good fortune within me even though i don't have to really follow a certain religion or a certain faith i have like a faith in myself and as long as i have something to believe in everything is okay and he like my favorite like Bono quote that he has about this song. And it's actually in my Twitter bio where he says, you don't have to lose your soul to gain the world. And that's mm-hmm. my perspective just on like so many things in my life. And having this is kind of like my New York anthem has, you know, it's, I just think it's probably like one of their like just best songs. And I, I'm just happy that it exists and that he put this out into the world and streets is great. Streets is a wonderful song, but (laughs) I don't think like, I don't think streets is as good as this song and they can throw rocks at me. I don't care. I'll like like Chris said, I'm glad we have both. Um, For me, one of the things about this album is I'm a few years younger than the band, but of course, as we all get older, our experiences can parallel. And they were becoming much more aware and they had kids growing up and they were in such a different phase of their life. Like if you look at each of the decades of their albums, clearly you can see Mm -hmm. how it 
it, the music and the lyrics change with them. And so the lyric for me, you guys know I'm very lyric oriented, but it's the time won't leave me as I am and time won't take the boy out of this man. I love, 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 love that lyric. And, um, it, I love the whole song, but that lyric to me is profound because as we get older, we don't feel older. We just look at, well, sometimes I feel older, <laughs> but honestly, I still feel like it was the first time I saw them, you know, back on the Joshua Tree tour, you know, and when I first started listening to them in the early 80s. And so this lyric to me, I could just totally relate to where he was coming from on it. Part of it with that lyric is how Edge's guitar almost sounds like it's a car that's revving up to start going yes. again. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's like, and it, it restarts every time Bono sings the time. And then it get, launches when he actually goes into the time won't leave me as I am. And it it is kind of like just this mini rebirth within the song. And a few of you have said that... Um, the album version sounds just kind of better than the live version. I remember Jackknife Lee saying he doesn't like songs that fade out. He likes songs that have a definitive ending. And I think that really suits this song well, uh, just because it's this, like I said, just hyper energetic, super joyful package that has a definitive beginning and ending. And it, it, it's complete. It doesn't fade out. It doesn't just kind of disappear into the ether. It is what it is, and it's right there for you to start consuming and finish consuming, and I love it. Nice. Well, that's a perfect ending for that discussion of that song. We'll just cut it off right there and move on to All Because mm-hmm. of You. This is uh, one of those songs that lyrically, I think, is as good or better than the musicality or music sh- musicianship. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, it's a good rock tune and, and nothing wrong with that. But just lyrically, even just reading them now, as much as I've said them and sung along to the song a lot. But just the I love the interplay of the words and the rhyming scheme that he's using. And um, and just it goes echoes a little bit of what we were just talking about, where like um, there's a spiritual component of could be talking to God, he could be talking to his mom, he could be talking to his parents, any of that kind of stuff. But uh, and depending on where you're at, you can kind of take with from it what you will. But that the fact that despite he's been, um, he's not broken, but you can see the cracks, he's, you know, he has flaws, but he's also just been born. He's starting out again and wants to get going again um, because of you, whether again, where that happens to be in your life, what experiences you've had right now, or lately or whatever that kind of points to that person or that thing or that event uh, in your life, I think is where it's kind of a a beautiful track. And um, I should say not to take anything away from the, uh, the edge in, in the song. It's this whole album is very uh, guitar heavy and and lots of fun edge stuff going on. But um, yeah, that was just something I noticed when in sort of re-listening and re-researching for this re-researching, researching researching, (laughs) uh, for this podcast. But I think that we should use intellectual tortoise in more conversations. (laughs) I mean, like what a lyric. I know. (laughs) 
that one's a bit sometimes of a the lyrics are kind of funny yeah <laughs> like oh bono but then it's like it's bono so it works you know For anybody else you're like no this is stupid but it's bono so i like it yeah <laughs> I just think it's kind of it it's a it's a feel good song too like you said it's just another one in the sequence um and when he talks about I'm not broke but you can see the cracks kind of reminds me of and this is going way back you know when he does the see the sweetest thing you know he says you can sew it up but you can mm-hmm. still see the tear yep so he he comes to that you know from time to time and that reminds me of that lyric as it was in this video, they were on the the truck. Yeah, I think this was the the flatbed truck. Flatbed, like they, yeah, like, yeah it wasn't so. on the bridge, but it was just they were on the truck. Yeah, where they have the yeah. The, this was the one that they videoed when they were driving through New York. Yeah, yeah. Which I wonder how, like, I, I, you know, somebody maybe out there who's listening was there. Uh, presumably, somebody who's a fan of you two <laughs> saw them <laughs> doing that, and and playing like a brand new song. Uh, is obviously fun for fans, but you wonder sort of what the average person was like, well, why aren't they playing whatever, you know, insert song, the only song they know from U2 or whatever, when they just happen to see U2 go by in a truck. But um, it's a, yeah, it's a, one of those classic sort of rock band videos that every band has where there's like police and talking. Obviously U2 has a few of those where <laughs> they're like organizing something going on in the city and it looks kind of like it's all disorganized, but obviously it's been all permitted and <laughs> safety didn't no, that was right. the thing that was the thing they didn't get any permits for it they just did it oh but because they were the first band to play new york after 9 11 the mayor said we're not going to do anything about it just because we owe these guys oh, really? wow yeah. oh, there you go yeah. so they just they just <laughs> got a flatbed truck and just started driving around and doing it without any advance notice or anything nice a lot of their san francisco uh or los angeles rooftop yeah back in the yeah. jt era <laughs> Except New York seems to like them a bit more than San Francisco or LA. <laughs> right. You wonder how much of that they'll replicate when they go on tour this time. Anyways, um, let's keep moving. A man and a woman. This is a song, uh, I don't know if it's just because this is a sign because nobody wanted to talk about it, um, that it, it's never been a favorite song of mine on the on the album. Something about the sound of it, I don't know. There's it Lyrically, there's a ton of words. <laughs> to, <laughs> lyric, like, not to, <laughs> it sounds like I hate words or something, but uh, there's a lot of lyric to it, but it's a song that's never really, it's a soulful song, but it's never really one that I've gravitated towards on the album. So I'm reluctant to speak with any huge heart about it because I, I won't do it justice if there's somebody else who's got a passion for the song but or is it maybe just one of those songs that falls flat for more U2 fans than others yeah I actually skip it oh what <laughs> so I'm ready for you. Rock, but what I, I mean the, the lyrics that I do like <laughs> okay, Ian's reaction. it's kind of free <laughs> it, the lyric I like is where he says brown eyed girl across the street on Rue St. Divine. I thought this was the one for me, but she was already mine. You were already mine. And he's always felt that way about Allie. And he's had a couple, if that's who he's referring to, I, I assume he is. And yeah. how he has referred to her in other ways, similar ways on other albums as well. I will say that I, I do appreciate this return. I've often longed for the return of uh, what he calls it, the, the high soprano voice or the 
fat, the fat lady, fat lady voice or whatever. The I was listening to it again today. I was like, oh yeah, that's actually I, I keep longing for that, and here it is right in front of me. But I still don't give the song its due, I guess. So Ian, you're you're obviously offended that Jill's skipping it. <laughs> it's an outrage. It's an outrage. Um, no, I mean, for me, honestly, because the album came out in I think it was in November when the first leaks came out, or maybe the late end of October. So I kind of think of the album overall as a fall autumn album but that specific song i do classify it with my summer songs where it's allowed to be fun it's allowed to just be like something that you listen to without thinking about too much when you're sitting outside on a warm summer evening or whatever for me it's perfect for that and yeah i mean it's it's not the best song on the album but uh i still love it and i know adam backs me up on that <laughs> yeah i was gonna say it's a great adam song for any adam fan, for sure. well if adam likes it you know it's awesome <laughs> just saying <laughs> all right let's move on crumbs from your table So interesting note about this song, and it has almost the identical chord structure to walk on. Make of that what you will. Um, So this is an example of where I think Bono does his best lyrics when he's being angry and biting and something is really frustrating him. So he said the song is about um, AIDS patients in Africa and just uh, the whole uh, where you're born should not decide whether you live or whether you die and three to a bed. Sister Anne, said, dignity passes by. That's talking about AIDS patients in impoverished portions of Africa that are stuck three to a bed just because they don't have enough facilities to give them all their own individual spaces. And when you get to the chorus and the uh, verses, it's just about how the first world and I think the U.S. in particular uh, is not giving the appropriate attention that Bono thinks is warranted to this uh, disease and this calamity that is affecting massive portions of uh, the population elsewhere in the world. Um, and the song just has this kind of like slow, uh, for me at least, it has this slow rumbling kind of menace to it, even though it's got like edges cl- chiming guitars and stuff like that. It's, it, yeah, it, there's a bitterness to this song and I think it shows up both in the music and the lyrics. And I, I do think U2's best lyrical decade was the nineties between Octoon Baby and Zeropa and pop. But I think this song stands up with the lyrics from those albums as good as any song they've ever done. Yeah. For me, this is like on the musical side, it's interesting just listening to that, the portion that I played there anyways, of the riff, the main riff of the song and how just the, almost the patience of a, of a musician like Edge and, and maybe Adam and Larry, depending on how it was all orchestrated, but just the patience to sit on a, on a little riff and have it kind of be slower than what you would normally play for like a upbeat rock song. Uh, but that being okay and being able to sort of see the song through with that. Um, and then lyrically the, how, like, just like you said, Ian, to have a, such a strong political message without ever outright saying the U S isn't giving enough money to Africa in any sort of real way, but 
being totally there using the great crumbs from your table line, which I just, I don't know if it was just because of listening to it, but I was just getting mad at my daughter for spilling a whole bunch of food off the table at lunch today and made some comment about the crumbs from her, the table, whatever. And like all of a sudden this light bulb went, light bulb went on in my head. But um, yeah, it's, I, I really love the, the, the song. And, and I think like you described it sort of the low rumble, low menace of the song that's there. He's kind of growling around like, uh, you know, I can almost picture him growling around the white house at the time and wondering what, what's it going to take kind of thing and, and that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah. It's a gut wrencher for sure. This one kind of gets me in all the feels for sure. It's uh, it is a really good song, and I think Ian, you described it very well. Poolboy said it. I think it's an unfortunate title for a song, but uh, it's an yeah. I don't know. Maybe it frames your thoughts before you go into it of of what it's going to be or whatever, and a little too much or something. But um, yeah. All right. Uh, let's keep moving on. One step closer. Is a heart that beats Can you hear the Jerusalem wing One step closer to knowing One step closer to knowing So this one is... Um, the- I was reading and in, 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 even on YouTube.com and the lyrics site and I think in the album notes it says special thanks to Noel Gallagher because he had sort of referenced something about Bono's dad dying and or he was talking with Bono about his dad dying and saying how do you think Bono had asked him do you think he knows God now or he sees God or you know he's Noel had said he's well he's one step closer to knowing and so obviously coming out of that is you know a very interesting deep song um, potentially about his father and just life and moving on and next steps and and things like that I always felt like the song itself um, I wanted like one more I wanted it to build into something and I'm glad I mean I'm glad they didn't and, and obviously they know what they're doing <laughs> far be it for me to tell them what to do but I always wanted to hear like the version that they had with the big intense solo that goes into like you know a city of blinding lights or streets kind of esque sound of a big chorus that comes the sort of angels coming at the end or whatever but um, they know best and kept it sort of slow and mournful almost uh, throughout the song but still I, I one of my more favorite Bono uh, vocal performances anyways so I mean, I sort of like how, you know, the album starts off with Vertigo and you're just like raring to go and then you have City of Blinding Lights and like Love, you know, like Lover Peace. And then you get to like this song towards the end of the album and it kind of makes you more serene and gets you into the moment and kind of into Bono's head more with the lyrics. And you're kind of like really zen about it and you're just listening to him. You know, there's no other kind of like, I guess like manic kind of songs going on. Like you're listening to something now where you're really kind of seeing like what Bond was trying to like convey. And that's so why I like that. It kind of takes this turn where it doesn't build up. Like you said, there is no other kind of like part in the song where there is like a moment of like grandstanding. But I, I like that. It kind of takes this direction at this point in the record. Yeah, I th- I think it may have worked a bit better if it was between Original Species and Yahweh, just this quiet, deep breath mm-hmm. before Yahweh starts. But part of it, what I like about it is just the, for lack of a better phrase, the helpless despondence of it, mm-hmm. where he's under, I'm under, he says, I'm under a bridge in a riptide that's taken everything I own. Mm-hmm. That's not something you can fight against. It's not something you could stop. It just, it's what has happened to you. Uh, I can't see the future. It's getting away from me. I just watch the taillights glowing. I can't catch up to it. It's past me. There's nothing I can do about it. 
can you hear the drummer slowing like the heartbeats are slowing it's yeah it's just the acknowledgement that bad stuff happens and you can feel diminished in life and there's nothing you can do to stop it or to reverse it it's just it just is yeah all right let's we'll keep moving on to original of the species This one is, I think, my favorite song off of the album. And the, you know, I wrote a, like a video about it back in 2012. And Chris, I sent you the link to post. But really, for me, um, as a parent, and at that time, you know, my kids were teenagers and younger. And it hit me from a parental viewpoint. And the, the sentiment is so beautiful. The theme of innocence, the, you start out, you know, don't be in a rush and just how Bono wants, I think this, he originally wrote it for Edge's daughter, Holly, but uh, I think over time it became about his kids and anybody's kids or however he chose to look at it from a parental standpoint. But I, love how the song unfolds and how he speaks as a parent. I'll give you everything you want, except the thing that you want. And he acknowledges you're the first one of your kind. So as children are small and they get older, especially in their teenage years, they feel so unique, but then they have this need to belong. And just how as a parent, he wants to hold on to everything, you know, and never let it go away. And I just, I love, love, love this song, and I love the video that Catherine Owens directed. If anybody wants to go read that, like a video. Honestly, I hadn't looked at that in a long time until today, and um, I still feel just as strongly about that video. Um, just come on, sugar, you know, show your soul. You've been keeping your love under control. Everywhere you go, shout it. You don't have to be shy about it. And just be yourself, you know, be yourself, be authentic. So, yeah, for me, this is one of those songs where the single version is definitely better than the album version. I kind of love the little chimes that they have at the beginning of the single version and the increased strings. Um, but, oh, yeah, yeah I, I remember watching this video for the first time and it was the first time I heard the single version. And they just had at the time it was pretty trippy CGI for the video with just vines growing and this CGI head, like letting, I don't want to say vomiting, but letting all these butterflies out of its mouth. And yeah, it it was so cool. And then, um, yeah, it's, it, it it is just such a magic song. And so much of this album, even though it's about like death and death of Bono's dad and dismantling an atomic bomb, there is still so much genuine joy in this album. And this song uh, yeah, it's such a good example of that. And then when they did the live version on the Milan DVD, 
that had the full mm-hmm. string section behind it. It's just so beautiful. I remember watching a documentary about the Mickey of all that you can't leave behind, and Bono was driving somewhere with the reporter, and he just played this quick little bit of a recording of them in the studio where he was singing, everywhere you go, you shout it. You don't have to be shy about it. And I remember just listening to that and loving that and wondering why they hadn't turned it into a song. And then four years later, I'm listening to the bootleg tracks of this album as they've been made available. And suddenly I hear it and it's in the chorus of a song. And it just made me so happy because I had been sitting on those lyrics for four years and they finally showed up in an official release. <laughs> nice. Which is, it's such a great like refrain at the end and kind of just like, with, again, like Becky said, starting off as a parent or, you know, to, to a friend maybe or whatever, whether it's someone who's self-conscious or, you know, or if it's just a love that you need to let out or whatever, but just any of those things of like, don't, you just kind of got one life to live get it out, go, go be you or go be you with that person or whatever the you know exact relationship is that you might be dealing with. But, um, I often find myself wishing there was, I love the, the first phrase of baby slow down. The end is not as fun as the start. Please stay a child somewhere in your heart. And like the mood of that moment before he jumps up, a uh, not an octave, but jumps up to the higher register and, and the band kind of kicks in. I want more of like a longer intro or something is, <laughs> I guess the last song I was wanting more of an outro and this one, I want more of an intro. So somehow, um, the perfect album is there to be had for me, I guess. But, um, just that like piano and Bono's in sort of more bluesy, soulful voice singing, vocal singing. Um, and it's there later in the song still, but I just often find myself wishing like, don't go there yet. Just hang on a little. <laughs> so anyways, uh, let's keep moving to, Unless, or did, I, did anybody not get chill? Did you want to say anything about? Oh, no. I mean, I, I mean, I agree with what everybody else said was, you know, like saying about it. And I think um, as a girl, I mean, I'm going to be what 32 this year and I'm still, you know, you still feel insecure about things and you still look at yourself like, well, how can I change and how can I be this and be that? And you listen to this song and I think it takes like a father of daughters to do a song like this. And, you know, Bono's got two little girls and they're not little anymore, but I mean, you know, I think that having a song like this written from a dad's perspective and saying, you know what, you're good enough and you're always going to be good enough and you shouldn't have to change for anyone. And I just always thought that the message of this song, hearing this in my twenties and being in New York and thinking, well, I'm going to be in New York and I should do this because that's what people in New York would do. And this is what I had to do to change myself. And it's like, you don't have to change yourself. So I definitely agree with what everybody else is saying about it. And I'm not someone who really enjoys a lot of like overly positive, like sentimental songs, even though like beautiful day is my favorite. And that's a very positive, but, um, this one I think, um, escapes that rule that I have. So it's, it's, I definitely love it a lot. And I think having this like on the record, um, is one of the reasons like why it's like my favorite, like songs like that it just goes to city of blinding lights. It just, you know, gives me a lot of hope and confidence. Yeah. You wonder like 12 years on now from when this was released and whatever, 14 years maybe, or whatever, when you wrote that looking at his kids now and you know, they have their own celebrity and in, in their own yeah. life and like, like smiling, crying and celebrity. And some people got way too much confidence. And obviously he, I'm not saying he's wishing his kids weren't doing what they're doing. He's obviously been very supportive of that or whatever, but just you wonder sort of like a original species part two now, looking at his 
kids as grown adults for the most, like at least some of them anyways, and sort of what would he, what's he going to write? Maybe he will to them in, in response to where they're at now. But um, all right, let's go to the final song for some folks was Yahweh. like this song i love the the music in it and i like the lyrics because they are visual you can see what he's talking about you can hear what he's singing about and you can to me that just pulls me into the whole experience deeper and i love how it's a song of peace generally speaking to me it is you know uh but also speaking to some of the if you will, in my mind, the, some of the ridiculousness of what we do, you know, and really just getting, I mean, I know he writes it about, you know, Israel, I guess, or Jerusalem, and it gets to that. But to me, I, the reason I'm drawn to this song is the feel of it and the, the visuals and the sound, you know, take these, take these shoes, make them fit. Um, I love the part where he says, oh, where is it? Take these hands, teach them how to carry. Take these hands, don't make a fist. Take this mouth so quick to criticize. Take this mouth, give it a kiss. I was listening to this today and I thought it might be a really good lyric to bring back into our current times. Um, it kind of makes you stop and think, you know, how are we treating each other and being critical or thinking about others? Um, but then he, the part where I like it musically is when he does, they do the part still waiting for the dawn and the sun's coming up and the music builds mm -hmm. and the sun's coming up on the ocean. I just love that. Um, I don't know. I'd have a lot. It's mostly touchy feely again for me <laughs> more than it is philosophical. Um, yeah, there's lots of, uh, well, the chat room's going, talking about the end credits of U2 3D where there's a beautiful version of it. Um, Yes, yeah, it was amazing. Just that's a good walk, point. Thank you. Going for that. through that, yeah. going through that line art town, and you get to turn all the corners and just see all the towers that are made of the drawings. Yeah, yes. it's that and the fly, where the fly just had all those numbers and letters bouncing out of the screen at you. Yeah. Those two songs were the highlights of that movie. I forgot about that. Thank you, whoever posted that. Yeah, and it's this is one of those songs, that, especially the um, I'm trying to think of now where there's an acoustic version of it somewhere on something probably, or maybe I'm thinking of a live version. Anyways, uh, a buddy of mine who used to do songs with where I, he'd be the vocalist and I'd have because I, I can't sing, but he can play. I play guitar with him, and I this would always be every mixtape I'd make or a mix CD, I guess it was, but where I'd be like, here's some songs we should do, and this song would always be on there of like I'd love to do this, and he never wanted to do it, <laughs> so I'm still waiting to find my. Uh, the, my Bono to the edge, I guess, as it were, <laughs> but, but I love, again, it's one of those songs for where like more, it works acoustically. You don't have to have the huge instrumentation that uh, something like a streets or whatever generally requires. Um, although December, the band Scotland has a great, uh, streets cover that works definitely in acoustic sense, but, um, yeah, lyrically and is kind of a fun one to sing that way and, and has a lot of beautiful imagery, like you said, Becky. So, um, very cool. Um, so for a lot of folks, that may have been the end of the album. There's a, a most of the world, I think, got the bonus track, right? I'm trying to remember what was the. I think I think it was just Japan and the bonus edition that was released in the U.S. and Europe. Oh, is that it? Okay. Yeah, just the I, bonus. I think that was it. 
I was trying to remember why or how I had it, but I, I did. I mean, obviously, YouTube fans find a way <laughs> to paraphrase uh, yeah. Jurassic Park. But um, yeah, so Fast Cars was a, a sort of a extra bonus track in in some parts of the world that you may or may not have heard. So this will be, a, if this is your first time ever knowing that there's a <laughs> bonus track, uh, this will be 20 seconds of it, and you can go find it later somewhere on the internet and iTunes and stuff. One of the best things I think about uh, this album is how many alternate versions of songs we got. Where, like, for this we had Xanax and Wine and Fast Cars, and there were early versions of Yahweh and uh, uh, which one? Uh, Sometimes you can't make it on your own. And there was um, uh, early version of Vertigo, Native Son, and. Mm-hmm. I love the contrast between the early versions and the later versions, but I think this one definitely benefited with the kind of uh, wailing and guitars and stuff like that uh, at the start of it. It definitely turned out better than Xanax and Wine. (laughs) By far. I like it. It's just got so much energy. And actually, when they played this at the same show I went to here in Houston, um, I was screaming at Bono to do original of the species because I was hoping they would play that, but we got this one instead. And um, it was fantastic, actually. Um, just so much energy, but it, it's such an interesting song. And it's interesting to me that they kind of threw it together at the last moment, even though, like you said, there were pieces of it they pulled from other places. Um you know, this whole idea of, I think, celebrity and obsession and, you know, dismantling the atomic bomb and, you know, that sometimes, I, I don't know, I, I don't have a lot of thoughts on the lyrics, but it's, it's the rhythm of the song and how it goes. And then the feel of it is pretty critical, obviously, and very interesting. Yeah, I like that. You can end the album either on Yahweh, which is just kind of like clean, forgiving, open ending to the album, or you can stick with the narrator till the next morning when he's waking up completely trashed and hungover (laughs) and just a mess. And you get to see kind of like that little glimpse into reality, even after he's presented the prettiness uh, that most of the world got. Um, But then, yeah, I also like the fact as Tim pointed out on the uh, chat room that the title of the album came from the song that half the people who bought the album didn't even get. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. It's very true. Yeah. That fast sort of fast spitting lyric that, uh, you know, Bono obviously is pretty good. At. And I would imagine, I guess I forget what like Bon Bongolese or whatever it's called. Like when he's writing a song and just sort of spitting words over top of a, a riff or whatever that edge has got going. I would imagine this is probably, you know, similar in a lot of ways to what it sounds like when they're just writing, work, workshopping a song, if it were, or whatever, um, is something like this where you just kind of stream of consciousness and throw some words out and then goes back and listens to the recording and figures out what he was trying to say. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that, that narrative. And I like the, what you said in the, in, as far as like, just for a lot of folks, Yahweh would be the, the peaceful end. And then some of us heard fast cars and kind of were ready for the next album already, uh, coming out of that with, um, you know, sort of anxious to see where this 
car, as it were, is going to take us to. But uh, and actually, I, I hadn't realized that they had, like you said, Becky, that they actually played live. Looking at the stats on the show or on the song, it has been played what uh, you know, sixteen, eighteen times, including here in yeah. Canada. So um, I'm sure there's versions floating around on the web if you're so inclined. So yeah, I. Yeah, and I always play it through to the end. I do go to this song at the end. Cool. Well, that brings us to the end of our podcast on how to dismantle atomic bomb. So, um, if you got uh, comments or questions, Chris, yes. Let me. I'm sorry. Let me jump in. There was yeah. one person on my Twitter who asked a question. Oh yeah. Uh, it was S Tim at Tim Jar J A H R. He wanted to know what is the band's opinion of the non singles on this album. He says track six to ten feel like unfinished ideas to him. <laughs> I had seen, so I had anybody seen want to take a stab yeah. at that? <laughs> I was wasn't sure whether we wanted to bring that up or if it anger some folks too much to, to comment oh, or I'm just if they curious if anyone has an opinion. <laughs> I'll bring it up because he sent it to me. <laughs> I think it does. I have. I understand what he's getting at too. The the vibe of like, they it does kind of feel like the first half, the, the A side, if you will, is really well produced, really well put together, and the B side is a bit of a. On the one hand, if you don't look too deeply, is a bit of a mishmash. But I think like what we've talked through, uh, and I appreciate especially Ian's just insight in some of the songs uh, on a deeper level too. Of there is a lot of tiebacks, callbacks to previous stuff and previous work and and things that are going on there that I think do make sense. But it does. I feel a bit like A side got a lot of love and B side got a little bit less. But you huh, can send see. send Becky your hate mail, hate tweets. I, <laughs> I really disagree with that. Like for me, Boy, Octave Baby, and Atomic Bomb are the three most balanced albums U2 has ever released regarding the first half and the second half. I Interesting. think, yeah, I mean, between like uh, Crumbs and uh, I guess all because of you would be on the second side uh, and Original the Species and Yahweh. The, for me, the second half is as solid as the first half, without a doubt. Nice. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think Crumbs and Original of the Species, those two alone make, I guess, the the B side of it just as strong as, like, the first side. Well, there you go. That's what's beautiful about you, too, is we can all have uh, these different opinions, just like City of Blinding Lights and and other songs, and still come together and love the concerts and uh, <laughs> looking forward to new shows this year so like tim said in the chat room a precursor to nolan on the horizon because there's a lot of african northern african sort of sounds in this song which i mean fast cars kind of jumps off of that and and could definitely be a sort of a hint of what was to come and like i think ian had mentioned too the this album we got a lot of sort of insight uh legal insight not just bootleg but legal <laughs> insight into how a song comes together getting to hear like on the box set you know, what other versions of a song and where they had, you know, part A from one song and part B from another song and brought those together to make an, a new song, um, which we haven't seen since, I, I want to say, I don't think. And it's hard to imagine them having the time to go back and do that kind of stuff now these days, it feels like. Um, but we'll, who knows, I guess we'll see with what happens after songs of innocence, songs of experience and songs of ascent all make their debut someday. Uh, if we get some sort of songs of this is what happened <laughs> collection <laughs> in between. <laughs> That's the album cover or album title. I'll, I'll take credit for that, but I don't think that'll be, that won't fit on Larry's t-shirts anyway. So, all right, well, be, let's wrap this up. Uh, any uh, closing thoughts and maybe your Twitter handle by way of going around the at you two podcast round table. Becky, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, I think in the collection of all their albums, I like this one a lot. And 
like I said, original in the species, my favorite on the album. And I love to hear so many of the songs continuing in their live shows. And uh, you can find me at B Myers, M Y E R S on Twitter. And Ian, how about you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. My Twitter is Ian P Ryan. And uh, Jill. I am on Twitter at beautiful day 36. And I talk a lot about Michael Fassbender also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Listen for Jill and I are doing a podcast, Michael Fassbender podcast shortly details to be determined, but uh, it'll probably have to be a video version because there's a lot of pictures of Michael Fassbender that I have to send Jill and then get Lots her response. Also. Yeah. Uh, I'm I Chris on Twitter. <laughs> if you have opinions on Fastbender or how to dismantle atomic bomb, I'd love to hear them. Uh, and you can follow at you too on Twitter, twitter.com slash ATU two facebook.com slash scrolling down my page. Where did it go? Facebook.com slash ATU two com. And uh, you can find the podcast more episodes of it, back episodes, back catalog, good stuff.fm slash ATU two, where you can hear the other versions of this podcast that we released before we recorded this one so you can hear what the alternate versions sound like no that's not actually true but um and uh apologies for any uh any of you that may have heard my kids screaming and yelling as they played hockey right outside my door uh that's a special extra bonus material for this episode (laughs) all right some cultural flavor yeah some canadian content (laughs) local local flavor (laughs) thank you all for listening and we'll see you again next time have a great day bye